And as you're finding your spot, if you would turn in your copies of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 8, what John had read earlier this morning. just want to be sure, I think it was mentioned earlier, but let everyone know that we're having a chicken dinner after church this morning, after worship, and all of you are invited. So please make use of that great opportunity for fellowship, and we can sit and talk, spend time together. This is taken from Christianity Today magazine. Born in Putnam County, New York. This baby became ill within two months. Unfortunately, the family doctor was away and another man, pretending to be a certified doctor, treated her by prescribing hot mustard poultices to be applied to her eyes. Her illness eventually relented, but the treatment left her blind. When the doctor was revealed to be a quack, he disappeared. A few months later, her father died. Her mother was forced to find work as a maid to support the family. And the young girl was mostly raised by her Christian grandmother. Her love of poetry began early. Her first verse, written at age eight, echoed her lifelong refusal to feel sorry for herself. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. While she enjoyed her poetry, she zealously memorized the Bible, memorizing five chapters a week. So I didn't hear a gasp. <laughs> memorizing five chapters a week. She could recite, even as a child, the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, the Gospels, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and many Psalms, chapter and verse. I think it is a great pity that the Master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you, remarked one well-meaning preacher. What was her response? We will hear that later this morning. Worldwide, there are 49.1 million people who are blind. An increase, really, of 42% from 30 years earlier in 1990. Vision organizations estimate the number will rise to 115 million by the year 2050. In the United States alone in 2015, there were a total of 1.02 million people who were blind. And approximately 3.22 million people in the United States that had vision impairment or difficulty seeing even after the use of corrective lenses such as contact lenses or glasses. By 2050, the number of these conditions are projected to double to approximately 2.01 million people who are blind. 6.95 million people with vision impairment, even with corrective lenses. Vision disability is one of the top 10 disabilities among adults 18 years and older and is one of the most prevalent disabling conditions among children. That's blindness. Blindness at the time of Jesus' ministry on earth. One preacher described the situation this way. First of all, we cannot become so familiar with miracles that we overlook the reality of what a stunning thing a miracle was in that era of human history. Diseases were everywhere. There really was no knowledge of what caused disease. 
There were no cures for anything. The first real cure didn't appear until the 19th century. Whatever you had, you had and you lived with it. And the concoctions that were offered for curing diseases were bizarre and humorous, if not pathetic. The cure for blindness, according to one very trusted source, was rooster blood mixed with honey smeared on the eyes. Birth defects, venereal disease, lack of sanitation, infections, accidents, diseases, all contributed to people being blind. And a lot of people were blind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us by your word. Thank you for the prayers that have been offered up this morning that you would teach us. Lord, we, we are blind, we are, are deaf unless you unstop our ears and open our eyes to see you. Please do that, Lord. Please send your spirit to, to open the scriptures to us that we would know you, that we would see as this man who was blind suddenly was able to see. Lord, draw us to you. For those this morning that have not known you, have not seen you, please open their eyes. In your name I pray, amen. We begin with sight that actually can see men. Uh, in verse 22, the beggars and a blind man arrive. We read, then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Bethsaida is a town north of the Sea of Galilee and east of the Jordan River. You can see it in the middle. There's a little red star. I'm not sure how clear that is. It, it um, is the name Bethsaida means house of the fisher or house of the hunter. And you can think of it this way a little bit, just if you like language and, and words. Bethlehem is Beth house of Lechem, which is bread, Bethlehem. Beth Seida is Beth, a house, or Beth, and Sada, which is a hunter or a fisher. So this is the house of the fisher, is the name of this village. It does not appear to be the same as the town of Bethsaida, Galilee, which is a little bit to the south, right on the shores of Galilee, although there is some disagreement on that. But it appears that it's a little bit north. It's a unique community, Bethsaida, Julius. It's near the site where Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And we realize that could have been as many as 25,000 that he fed with five essential, essentially biscuits. These weren't your 12-foot bread loaves or longer. These were small biscuits, five of them, and two small fish. 25,000 people, perhaps. Amazing miracle. And many people in this area were beneficiaries of that. And the man that comes is tuflos. It means opaque. And opaque is where there is no light that gets through. To this man, no light could come through his eyes. They were completely, completely dark inside. He could see nothing. And what we see here immediately is this theme of the touch of Christ. They begged Jesus to touch the blind man. They didn't beg him to heal him. They begged him to touch him. Now healing was implicit. It was taken for granted. 
But power, power was a fully believed and accepted attribute of this unusual rabbi, Jesus, in the minds of the great crowds that followed him. They did not grasp his fully omnipotent power as a creator, but they did believe he had power to heal and restore and to deliver that power that no man had ever shown in the history of the world. And that was absolutely true. You know why? Because there had never been a man like Jesus. There had never been a man who was God. Jesus was God. He was He who had determined, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, to take the form of a servant. He had existed from eternity. And over 2,000 years ago, He became something He had never been in all of existence. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And he was found living on this earth in human form. But he was God. The Pharisees, and take note of this, and the other religious leaders and their followers, they refused to touch the diseased. Men and women plagued with actual leprosy. The blind, the lame, many others they were afraid to touch because they would become ceremonially unclean and unable to worship before their God. Isn't that interesting? But God himself, as Jesus, came and touched the diseased. He touched the blind, the lame, and anyone else in order to restore them to health and to demonstrate who God really is and what he really does. When a leper came to Jesus, he reached out and touched him and healed him in Mark chapter 1. In chapter 3 verse 10, we re- the report is, He healed many and all that were afflicted tried to press through to reach him, to touch him. Jairus, the synagogue ruler's little girl, he had a little girl who was dying. And he begged Jesus to come and lay his hands on her. Jesus, the God-man. He touched tens of thousands of unclean men and women. He drew back from no one who sought him. Now this was a sickening affront to the religious. But it was a major display of unconditional love of God through the literal hands of Jesus Christ. What a God that he would become men and not only would become a man and live among us but he would go to those who were esteemed as the worst of us, the filthy, the unclean, and he would embrace them while everyone else rejected them and casted them aside. That's who God is. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Here we have the beginnings of sight. The beginnings of sight in verses 23 through 25. And he begins relocation for the work. And this is interesting. This does not happen so often. It did happen. It happened with the deaf and mute man at the end of chapter 7. He took him aside from the multitude and then he healed him. But this is more specific. And this morning I'm going to ask you to dig pretty deep in some of these things and think this through. Jesus leads this man, a blind man who would have needed leading, and he led him out of this town. He led him out of Bethsaida. Not simply away from the multitude that would have gathered to watch him. Away from them, yes, 
but in particular out of the town. You see, Bethsaida was not a popular city with Jesus by this time. It was a haven of unbelief. Now give some details on that toward the end of this healing event. But right away we see then Jesus Christ ministers to the man. Christ ministers to the man in verse 23. The second part he says, And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Vividly think of this picture in your mind. None of the commentators that I read have a clear interpretation of why he spat on that man. There's a lot of conjecture uh, as well as caution on what not to assume. Spitting on someone is one of the most common gestures of disgust toward that person. I have been spit on. By those who hated Christ and ministry for him. Perhaps some of you have at times. But in this case. This is completely opposite. Jesus' spittle is a blessing. It gives a great gift of sight to this man. And I don't get it. And I would entertain and, and love to discuss it with someone. But in some way God takes his son Jesus Christ. And he spits on this man. Which would have commonly been one of the most most uh, disgusting disdaining gestures a man could give to someone else and he uses the same gesture to bring healing and sight to this man it's amazing Jesus does it in love he looked up the man looks up and he sees I see men like trees walking now keep in mind what we're looking at here is a first There is no miracle record of Jesus where in the middle he stops and asks, how's it going for you? But it is not. Is it working? That's not what he asks. He asks, do you see anything? And this is crucial. Jesus knows exactly what is happening and what the man is seeing. But it is vital for the purpose of this miracle that the man himself give the status report. It's important that this man declare what he is seeing and use the words that he does. And then it says, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And it looked up is the word anablepo. And it's a compound word, ana, meaning up or about. And blepo means to look at or see. It's most commonly translated, though, as the actual giving of sight, not just looking in a direction vertically. If we go to... Bartimaeus. It's the same word used in his account. Bartimaeus was blind. In Mark chapter 10 verse 52 it says he received his sight. And it's the word anablepo. In Matthew chapter 11 verses 4 through 5. Jesus answering John's disciples. Remember they come to him. And they're asking whether Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah. Or should we wait for another? And Jesus answered them. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. Anablepo. In Acts chapter 9 verse 12. Saul. Who would soon become the Lord's man Paul. God spoke to a Christian named Ananias. And he spoke to him about Saul saying. Saul has seen in a vision. A man named Ananias come in. And lay his hands on him. So that he might regain his sight. Anablepo. In other words this blind man has regained his sight, but it is qualified. His sight wasn't clear. 
He saw men that looked like trees walking. He made out shapes. He saw motion. He even identified shapes, such as a man. But there was still much missing. Verse 25, Then he, Jesus, put his hands on his eyes again. So after he had spat on his eyes, he put his eyes, hands on his eyes. And now he does it again. He touches his eyes and he made him look up. In some of your versions, it says he looked up intently. Or in the ESV, he opened his eyes. And here he comes to clarity of sight. Made him look up. It's the word diablepo. It means to see with a penetrating gaze. It's, it's like sight that pierces through the fog. Now he is seeing clearly. And he was restored and saw everyone or everything clearly. His vision now is clear. He's gone from a penetrating gaze. He's gone from a fuzzy gaze. And now it is clearing up. In fact, to see clearly is emblepo. It means to fix one's eyes perfectly. Sproul wrote, his vision was without blur. It was impeccable. His healing was complete. And it's interesting to see this progression. He goes from anablepo to diablepo to emblepo. A perfect vision. A perfect vision of sight. A very fast but progressive gift of sight. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town. And then in some of your verses it says, Nor tell anyone in the town. But neither go into the town. It's an exclusive sight. Neither go into the town. It was not unusual for Jesus to tell people he healed, not to tell what he did. We have seen that on several occasions already. Jesus had a very specific purpose and timeline for his ministry. He would not be dissuaded by the crowds and popularity. Even his own disciples would resist his direction at times. While there were numerous opportunities to take the admiration and passion of the crowds, crowds of tens of thousands, and capitalize it on it for his own power, Jesus would not. His purpose was to fulfill the will of his Father. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom payment for many. Jesus was not about politics or gaining power. He would now begin at this point to teach very specifically his coming death, burial, and resurrection to his disciples. From this point forward, he would repeat this over and over and over again to them. But on this occasion, at this city, Jesus specifically excludes entry into the town of Bethsaida. It is as if there is something very serious in the mind of Christ against this town, this individual town. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 22, we read, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, they will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. 
A few weeks ago, we saw in a singular sense the miracle of demon deliverance. It occurred in Tyre. And there was a woman there whose daughter was demon possessed. And she begged Jesus to free her daughter. She had repented from idolatry. She had trusted in Jesus. She called him Lord, the son of David. She knew who Jesus was. The people of Bethsaida, they would not believe in spite of countless miracles performed before their very eyes. The specific exclusion of this wonderful miracle from this rebellious town is seen as a sign of final condemnation. They, like the Pharisees who had left at the, Jesus had left at the Sea of Galilee for the final time, they would no more see the grace and power of Christ. This is chronologically the last miracle Jesus will ever do in Galilee. This particular miracle of healing in its very unique progressive two-part method appears to be one that not only benefited the blind man but look at this other purpose. It also taught the disciples a very unique and exclusive lesson for them. The commentator Edward cites in the original Greek there are eight different words used for nine instances of sight in verses 23, 24, and 25. Eight different words for sight. Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. Giving sight to the blind would be one of the greatest testimonies to the arrival of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 35 verse 3, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Isaiah 42, verse 7, or 1 through 7, excuse me. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, the Messiah, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged. Till he hath established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord. Who created the heavens. And stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth. And that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And the spirit to those who walk on it. I the Lord have called you. The Messiah. His son in righteousness. And will hold your hand. And I will keep you. And give you as a covenant to the people. As a light to the Gentiles. That's us. He is our light. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness. From the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. To open blind eyes. John said in chapter 16 of his gospel. These things 
I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. We will see next week, and in the verse is coming very shortly, in Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them, began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What kind of news would that have been to hear? You're going from city and city, village and village. You've got tens of thousands of people everywhere you go. Uh, every place this man goes, this Jesus, this rabbi, he's touching people and dead are coming to life. Blind suddenly see Lame, rise up and, and shout for joy and jump with, with the thrill of being fully healed. People with leprosy that have been outcasts and, and totally impoverished now are completely clean. This man has it all. He has victory. He has power. And now he's telling me, I must go and be persecuted, arrested, crucified, and buried. That is pretty anticlimactic when you're on a rise and seeing everything going the way you had hoped it would go and that this Messiah someday would take the authority and the power from Rome and give us a kingdom. This growing clarity of sight toward Jesus is displayed in the next four verses. It's not full clarity. It's not full clarity of sight like the man received after Jesus' second touch. But it is insight. It is gaining clarity and depth with each moment that they live with Christ. It's much like the anablepo. This could be considered the recognition sight without full clarity. Such spiritual sight will rise and fall with these disciples. But sight is growing even if it is blurred. The continental divide is a drainage divide on a continent such that the drainage basin on one side of the divide feeds into one ocean or sea, and the basin on the other side feeds into a different ocean or sea. The continental divide that you see up here in the red, also called the Great Divide, separates the watersheds of the Pacific Ocean from those of the Atlantic and Arctic Ocean. It runs from the western tip up at the top of the Seward Peninsula in Alaska, through western Kansas, not Kansas, through western Canada, along the crest of the Rocky Mountains, including through Glacier National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and Rocky Mountain National Park to New Mexico. From there it follows the crest of Mexico's Sierra Madre Occidental and extends to the tip of South America. That's the Continental Divide. It is of unusual significance because every drop of rain or melted snowflake that falls on the west side of that divide will eventually make its way to the Pacific Ocean. On the other side of that divide, it will make its way eastward into the Gulf of Mexico and to the Atlantic Ocean. It is a gigantic difference maker. We have now arrived at what is called by some the Continental Divide of the Gospel of Mark. A report of this upcoming Q&A with Jesus that we're going to read about 
and his disciples here. It's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All include this. Whereas the story we just read, it is included only in the gospel of Mark. But this one is in throughout the gospels. From the crest of the revelation of Jesus Christ in this discussion with his disciples, the direction of Christ's ministry changes course dramatically. Realize we have come to the pinnacle and now the dramatic change of this book of Mark. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, it's a town at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's up there at the top, as you can see. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was located near one of the three springs that are the headwaters of the Jordan River. It was, had once been the center of the worship of the idol Baal. Under Greek influence it was named Paneus. And it idolized the mythological Pan who was a half goat, half man, mythological beast or man who watched over the flocks and nature. When Rome eventually took over, took control, Caesar's was its king and its god. And Herod's son, Philip the Tetrarch, when he gained control of this portion of the land, renamed the city Caesarea in honor of Caesar and Caesarea Philippi to identify it as different from the Caesarea that was along the Mediterranean. So Caesarea Philippi, its population is primarily Gentile pagans and is full of pagan idolatry. On the road, or on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? No. On the road, on the way. Luke, however, gives an additional small detail that gives us a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. Luke 9.18 says, And it happened, and it's the same story, as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. So, was it while he was praying or was it on the road again? It's not a contradiction. This is a description of the life of the man Jesus. Whether he was in the synagogue in Nazareth, along the seashore of Galilee, in a house in Tyre, or walking with his disciples on the way to another town, he was always a man of prayer. He lived and breathed prayer communion with his father. He did not try to squeeze it in whenever he could between responsibilities. It was his life everywhere. And I could picture this, that they're making their way to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus says, men, I, I need 45 minutes or an hour. I'll be back after a little while. But he went off to pray alone. And then he's back with his men. And he had been in prayer. To me, that is so convicting. We, me, often have difficulty making time for prayer when the slightest change of schedule comes about. While we are under pressure at work, when someone gets sick at home, when the schedule changes, or something out of the ordinary occurs, prayer and time with our Savior is often the first thing to go or to suffer. On vacation, how difficult is it sometimes when we have more time to spend more time with Jesus Christ? I'm not giving this as a guilt trip. This is something that, that I struggle with. But I know many of you do as well. But we look at the example of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, spending time with the Father constantly. And even when He's on His way to an important event up at Caesarea Philippi, or He's coming from this place or this place, in the middle of the night, He finds time to be with the Father in prayer. And I thought that was a tremendous example to us. 
Prayer was Christ's priority. Do you think that the disciples didn't get into mischief and things go wrong when he wasn't there? We know they did. But seeking the Father was priority over all else. Jesus now asks this first question to cause his men to think about who he is and what the masses of people have been saying about him. And it's a great question, by the way. It's a great, excellent question. This is a question, uh, for instance, this last week, I had the privilege of sitting with six young men from this church in a local restaurant as we discussed ways to begin conversations focused on the gospel and on Jesus Christ. And this was one of the questions mentioned. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Jesus isn't asking about what the Pharisees and scribes think. They have clearly made that known. They despise Jesus. They hate him. They believe he is of the devil. They are trying to kill him at this time. But he asks, who do the anthropos, the common men, the common people, who do they say I am? So they answered him, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now where have we heard this line before? This is very similar to the same thing that we heard from Herod when he was stirred up and became aware and afraid of Jesus' ministry. It was growing in popula popularity. Then we read in Mark chapter 6 verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet. Or like one of the prophets. But Jesus' question to the disciples is a fairly easy one. It's based on observation. It involves some scrutiny and understanding, but it doesn't require any personal commitment. Who do the people say that I am? But it's also a primer. It's a primer for the very next question he will ask. And now we hear the point that Jesus is aiming for. What the people say about him is far less important than his next question. And here we see Christ as seen through sight from God. Christ is seen through sight from God. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Now in, in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word you is emphatic. These men have been intimately with Jesus in ministry for about two years now. This is crucial at this continental divide moment in Jesus' ministry. And it's also absolutely crucial in the very lives of these disciple men. It's the first time the word Christ is used in the book of Mark since the very opening verse. And that was actually the title. This is the first time. Peter answers Jesus in Matthew 16. And Matthew adds a little bit here. He says, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. What does Christ mean? It means the anointed one. You are the Messiah. With this title. Peter declares first of all. To Jesus. And then to everyone present. A confession that Jesus is the one sent from God. He is getting it. He is seeing it. He is the one sent to fulfill the long awaited role of the Messiah. He is the one. If we look back 4,000 years before this event. To fulfill the role of the one declared in the presence of a devastated, sin-broken Adam and Eve. 
In the Garden of Eden, when he spoke to the serpent who had deceived Eve, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, or crush your head, and you shall crush him on the heel. He will be the one. This is the one they recognize finally. The one told from of old who would bring salvation. It's the recognition that Jesus is this one. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus responds to Peter and he had Peter's answer and he says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Then whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a controversial set of passages there. And if we were in Matthew, we'd go into that with more depth. But right now, we're going to say this. Contrary to what some say in lauding Peter's comment, it is clear by Jesus' response that Peter's answer was not from the disciples' great wisdom or holiness. For Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As one scholar wrote, the disciple could take not credit for this theological breakthrough of faith. They believed only because the Father had drawn them. In John chapter 6. The Son had revealed Himself to them. Matthew chapter 11. And the Spirit had opened their eyes to the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then Jesus ends and strictly warns them that they should tell no one about Him. Jesus warns again. And this is a very strong, strict rebuke to these men. Not to tell this to anyone. The message of His Messiahship was so utterly unlike the aspirations of the Jewish nation. It would never have come together if they had done so. The humiliation and the literal death on a Roman execution cross was indispensable to the gospel. He must hang dead, humiliated before the people of Judah in their great city of Jerusalem on that Passover day. Let me read that again. He must hang dead, humiliated before the people of Judah in their great city of Jerusalem on that Passover day. It was the very center of what must take place. Jesus must live out the gospel completely opposite of the hopes and dreams of the people that he had come to save. The intervention of the people claiming his Messiahship at this point would not have allowed for it. Jesus would permit no one, however, to stand in his way. From this point forward until his arrival on the cross in Jerusalem, Jesus' teaching would focus primarily on his coming persecution, death, burial, and resurrection. Knowing Jesus Christ. Good teacher or God incarnate. The Ligonier's 2020 survey of theology in the United States this statement was said, agree or not agree. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. U.S. population, 52% agreed. 36% did not. Actually, that's not so bad for the general population of the United States. 
But the U.S. evangelical population, 30% agreed that he was not God, but he was a good teacher. 66% did not. Edwards wrote, the categories of John the baptizer, of Elijah, or one of the prophets are no closer to the real Jesus than are the various Jesus figures of historical criticism, enlightenment, rationalism, feminism, Aryan and racist theories, or the Jesus seminar, or the various sociological models in our day. None of them are close. There is no greater pursuit on earth or in life than to know Jesus Christ. There is no greater pursuit worthy of your last penny. If it cost you your last penny, if it require your final breath and your last drop of blood, nothing is greater than to know Jesus. There is none like Him. He is worthy forever. If it cost you everything, you have gained everything. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The remarkable woman mentioned earlier this morning wrote more than 9,000 hymns, some of which are among the most popular in every Christian denomination. She wrote so many that she was forced to use pen names lest the hymnals be filled with her name above all others. And for most people, the most remarkable thing about her was that she had done so in spite of her blindness. Frances Jane Crosby could write very complex hymns and compose music with a more classical structure. She could even improvise it. But she preferred to write simple sentimental verses. That could be used for evangelism. I like that woman. She continued to write her poetry up to her death. A month shy of her 95th birthday. You will reach the river brink some sweet day by and by. Was her last stanza in the year 1915. Back to that question. I think it is a great pity that the Master did not give you sight when he showered you so many other gifts upon you, remarked one well-meaning preacher. Fanny Crosby responded at once as she had heard such comments before. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind, said the poet, who had been able to see only for her first six weeks of life. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Sproul wrote, if you ever are downcast, if you ever are jealous of someone else's status or possessions, if you ever cry to God, why me, in the midst of affliction, hear these words, blessed are you. You have been enabled to recognize the pearl of great price. And if God never gives you another blessing for the rest of your days on this earth, you will have no reason to do anything else but proclaim His glory and His mercy to the whole world. Because the greatest blessing a human being can ever receive is the blessing of knowing Him. And that is true. If you have received His sight to know Christ, you are above all men most blessed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you those brothers and sisters here that have received sight to see you, that you did so. And Lord, we sometimes 
We feel like we're the man who could see trees, men walking as trees. We're not real clear at times. But you're causing us to grow. Those that seek you, you say you will show yourself to. You say those who obey you and obey your commandments, you will reveal yourself to. So Father, we ask that you would do that. That you would cause us to grow progressively, gradually, to a greater, greater understanding inside of who you are. Please make your word to come alive. We know that your word has been given to us as your expression of who you are, as your testimony. So please make us to be diligent students of your word and to see you, Father. But we can't do that unless you will grant us that sight. May we be dependent upon you and beg for more day by day. And Father, for those who are blind, the tragedy is they don't even know they're blind. I pray for the blind that are here that you will open their eyes, that they will have sight to see you, Father. In your name, amen.